Yes, children, please dismiss to Children's Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Have the privilege of praying with, uh, hopefully this is on, right? Can you hear me? I had a green light on the microphone. Okay. Green, we're good. Got to pray with Pastor Tim, Pastor Caleb, and, and the deacons and elders here. Uh, I, I don't know who all was in the room. Deacons and elders. And one of the things you realize is that when you travel around, you can meet new people, and as soon as you begin speaking with them, if they profess Christ and the same gospel that we put our faith and trust in, in God's holy word, we immediately have a common bond and something to share together. You ever notice that? You ever met a Christian and immediately you have that in common? This last week at RBC uh, camp, one of the things that the Lord had laid on, on my mind was I really had a burden for the, the groups that I was going to be speaking with, uh, the seniors, as in high school age, primarily a few of the junior hires, I think, were in that group, was that we are being bombarded with culture about uh, all sorts of things, and we need to have a biblical way to approach some very difficult topics. So in the classroom... Uh, we just took those topics head on and tried to give the teenagers uh, a way to process all those things that they were hearing and uh, a way to, to look through the, the lens of Scripture to see that the Scriptures really do provide an answer. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that the Word of God is sufficient for all things pertaining unto life and godliness. And the question at our mind is, do we really believe that and how do we answer some of these tough things? And I also wanted them to see through the course of the week that there are riches in God's Word. How many believe that there are riches in the Word of God? Hopefully everybody here this morning. But so often we spend a lot of our time in devotion and otherwise in certain areas of Scripture. If you're reading through the Scripture, we're familiar with certain passages and certain stories. You all know the beginning. In Genesis, and we know that account, and we know the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know the story of Joseph. We know the story of Noah. We know the story of uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and David and Goliath, and we know some of these things. But then there's all kinds of passages tucked away in both the Old Testament, a lot in the Old Testament, and even in the New, that we just kind of read through quickly and move on to the next thing. And I wanted to show the campers this week that there are riches in all parts of God's Word. So that's what I was trying to do through the course of the week, was to take what we might call obscure passages that we may have never even heard preached in our entire lives and show that there is great truth in them. And so what I'd like to do this morning is not give you a passage like that, but I'd like to, to take a message that I actually preached to the teens this week and preach it this morning so that you can see, just as they did, that there is incredible riches in the Word of God. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for the opportunity to look into your holy, inspired, infallible, and authoritative Word this morning. Pray that you would have your will and way in our lives as we encounter the living Word of God. May your Spirit convict us of truth and apply these lessons to our lives that we would walk from this place changed and adoring you even more and have a more sure confidence in the word of God that you have given us. We pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings 13, you have an outline and a handout there, so you probably knew that we were going there. Uh, very quickly, I'd like to just orient you since we're diving right into the middle of an Old Testament book here where we are in Israel's timeline. Uh, you know that Israel was a united kingdom for just three kings and then it got split when uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne. He decided that he was going to be a taskmaster. The people didn't like that because of all the work they had done under Solomon. And so they rebelled against him, and this had all been prophesied by God because of the sins of Solomon and those sorts of things. He said that the kingdom would be, would be torn away from them, and we now know and enter into a time in Israel's history called the Divided Kingdom. And so we have the ten tribes to the north, and we have the two tribes to the south. And uh, there's all kinds of lessons in here. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. When Rehoboam was seeking counsel about how she, he should govern and rule these people, he decided to forsake that. And uh, when you ignore counsel and wisdom, uh, there are tough lessons sometimes to be learned. Proverbs 23.22, Listen to your father who gave you life. Very interesting that his father is the one who wrote those words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Rehoboam forsook that. So he refuses to offer rest for the people of Israel. They, re, they rebel against him. You can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 12 and following. He did remain king, but only for those southern two tribes that we call Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom, comprised of ten tribes, went to Jeroboam. And uh, you can read about that. Jeroboam had become a leader in uh, already when he was in the workforce under Solomon and he had shown himself to be a great and diligent worker and it says in first Kings chapter 11 uh, here's the type of projects that happened under Solomon Solomon built the millow closed up the breach in the city of David his father that's first Kings 11:27. and it seems that part of Jeroboam's grudge against Solomon and therefore against his son was all the forced physical labor that was happening but he was exceptional at his work and so the people rallied around him and wanted to make him a leader. Uh, then in the midst of that, there's a prophet that comes onto the scene by the name of Ahijah. Ahijah goes to Jeroboam and he tells him that he is going to be king. That's an interesting thing to happen when you're just this guy who's working and doing physical labor. A prophet comes to you and says that you're going to be king. Uh, you can read all about it in 1 Kings 11, 30, and 32. And he gives him a strict warning. He says, listen, the reason you're going to be king is because Rehoboam chose to forsake the word of God and he sinned and he followed after idols. There's a real problem here and Israel is beginning to learn a tough lesson or we hope they are. It seems that they never learned the lesson that idolatry is something that God takes very seriously. By the way, if idolatry is something that God takes seriously then, do you think it's still something that he takes seriously today? It sure is. And that's something that maybe we don't spend as much time thinking on, meditating on, and praying for the Lord to reveal in our heart the things that are unpleasing to Him. Because idolatry is a huge problem. It's so big that He's willing to rip apart a kingdom of His chosen people because of it. And so Ahijah adjures Jeroboam and it says to him in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38, If you listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. The promise of blessing. That's followed by, but if not, if you choose to walk in sin, there's something 
uh, there's something awful awaiting you. So Jeroboam, upon receipt of this news, flees to Egypt because once it's said that you're going to be king and there's a sitting king, probably he's going to try and get rid of you, so he runs away. But we need to, again, just stop and pause and realize that idolatry is a huge problem. It's not just a problem for guys like Rehoboam. It's not just a problem for guys like Jeroboam. It's a huge problem. We know from the rest of Scripture, if you've spent any time and you've even done a cursory reading of the Kings and the Chronicles and Israel's history, that Jeroboam's a bad, bad dude. In fact, everybody who comes after him in the northern tribes, if they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, it goes all the way back to this first king walking in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Idolatry is a huge problem. And the temptation to idolatry, the temptation to follow after things that set themselves up as God or that we set up as God in His place is something that we can't even imagine the pull. I mean, you're told that you can have a kingdom and the reason the kingdom is being torn away from the other guy is because of idolatry. Then you're warned, don't be an idolater because if you do, the same things and worse things are going to happen to you that are happening to, to Rehoboam. And yet he still chooses idolatry. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how big of a temptation is idolatry then if it's something that can pull you away from God's promised blessings? And you know what the outcome is. So he's king. He comes back from Egypt. The people make him king. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20. And here's what he does. And then we'll get to our chapter this morning. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. Jeroboam plunges the nation of Israel straight into idolatry. He builds two calves of gold. We've seen that before in Scripture. Verse 30 of 1 Kings 12, this became a sin for the people, and the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on the high places, appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. That's an egregious violation of the law. And then the list of violations and sins continues because he makes sacrifices to the idols. He builds high places, which are physical declarations that God doesn't exist, the God of creation doesn't exist, and he has a very warm embrace of pagan religions. So that's the setting, and that's how we find ourselves here in 1 Kings chapter 13. And now we pick up the story. Like I said, this is probably one that we've just kind of read through because 1 Kings 13 is very interesting. We have here, first of all, this morning, we're just going to walk through the narrative and we're going to come to a conclusion as we work through the, the, the narrative section here, this entire chapter this morning. The first thing I'd like to consider in verses 1 to 10 is the declaration of the prophet. Now, you've already heard me talk about a prophet by the name of Ahijah. This isn't him. The declaration of the prophet, verses 1 to 10, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. So he does this while Jeroboam is doing that. He's standing in one of the places where he built those two calves, and he's there making offering to a pagan god. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave the sign, or a sign, the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Let's just stop there for a moment. 
The first thing I want us to consider under this declaration of the prophet is the focus of the chapter, verse 1. The focus of the chapter is laid out for us in the first verse, and it does that by not giving this man a name. No name. Now, it's easy for us to gloss over something like that as we're just reading through it, but I want us to stop and ponder it. It says, and all that we know of this man is he's simply identified as a man of God. It gives us a little insight into his character, gives us a little insight into his relationship with God, but we know that he has a relationship with God, but the focus isn't on him. We know nothing of his name. We know nothing of his background. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his family. We know nothing. All we know is that he is a mouthpiece for God. He's a man of God. It says that he comes out of Judah. That's what we do know of him without his name and his family background. And the thing that was, we're supposed to note from that is regarding his origin and authority is that coming out of Judah means he's not from one of the ten tribes that Jeroboam is king over. He's from one of the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And then he comes out by authority. The reason he leaves the two tribes is because he's sent by the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes to this man of God, a prophet, and he sends him to the king. And herein do we find the focus of this entire chapter that everything about this chapter, I would argue, revolves around the authority and the trustworthiness and the trueness, if you will, the veracity of the Word of God. Not only is the prophet not named, but the entire narrative is predicated, is based on the obedience to God's Word. God says to this man, get up out of your home, leave, go where I tell you, speak the message that I'm going to speak to you, to the person that I tell you to go and speak it to, and there's some other qualifying things that you have to do as well. He sends him to Bethel, one of the two locations where these golden calves are. And by the way, when Jeroboam sets up these golden calves, he tells the people of Israel, Behold, O Israel, these are your gods which brought you out of Egypt. That sounds really, really familiar. And you'd be right to say, I think I've heard that elsewhere because Aaron said the same thing when Moses stood a long time on the top of the mount receiving the word of the Lord. And we can see that first account in Exodus 32, verse 4. They said, where is this Moses? And he says, he makes those two calves. And then when they're made, he says, Behold, O Israel... These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's blasphemy. And so he's sent there to confront idolatry while it's taking place because we see in the text here that Jeroboam is standing by the altar to do what? To make offerings. He's caught in the midst of his sin. So we see the focus of the chapter is the Word of God, and it does so by not giving names and drawing everything of our focus to the Word of God. But then we see the consequences of idolatry, verses 2 to 10. In verses 2 to 5, we see that God can correct the most egregious sins. Jeroboam has plunged the nation into pure idolatry, and God says, listen, there's nothing that you can do that can thwart my eternal purposes. I have a way of making this right. And God can look down through the corridor of time because God exists outside of time, and he can say, listen, I can orchestrate all of these things. You can't, you're not powerful enough to throw God off course. Do you understand that? You can wreck your own life. 
That was a sermon for another day that sin will wreck your life. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing you can do that can throw off God's eternal purposes. If God wants to save His people Israel and make sure that there's a remnant out of them, there's nothing Jeroboam can do to make that not happen. And there's nobody down the line of evil kings in the northern ten tribes that can do that either. Even Omri, as awful as he was, can't do that. Even Ahab, who comes a few chapters later, was the worst king of all. Can't throw God off. In fact, he gives us a glimpse into this, and this shows us the omnipresence of God. When we speak of God's omnipresence, we're not just talking that He's here in this room and neighboring town and the country next door and, and so forth and all around the world. We're talking omnipresence has a, a, a time aspect to it. God is everywhere in time. So if we really believe that God is everywhere in time, He exists outside of time, He's eternally exists and He knows everything, is it anything for Him to be able to look down 200 years into the future and tell us the exact name of a king that's coming that will make everything right? If not, if you believe that God is who He reveals Himself in the Bible, and that's exactly what He does here. So He says through this man of God to Jeroboam, somebody's going to come down, they're going to tear down this altar, they're going to make everything right, He's going to come from the house of David and His name will be Josiah. You think that was just kind of a made-up story? Well, no, because we read about a king by the name of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, verses 15 and 16. God can correct the most egregious sins, and then He confirms the prophecy, and He says, listen, here's the sign that this will happen. The altar is going to be torn down right now. This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar shall be torn down, verse 3. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and says, seize him this unnamed prophet. And Jeroboam's hand, which was stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar was also torn down and ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And then that leads us to Another observation under the consequences of idolatry, not only can God correct egregious sins in the future, you're not powerful enough to throw them off course, but we consider this a false and late repentance in verses 6-10. to 10. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. So packed away in this chapter, we have really a miracle, don't we? We have a withered hand or a paralyzed hand that now can't be retracted. He can't move. It's frozen here. And the king says to the man, pray for me. The man prays for him and he's healed. It's really, truly a miracle. And he goes on. And the king said, come home with me now after he's been healed and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house... I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for it was commanded me by the word of the Lord. Now we have further instruction. What was commanded by the word of the Lord? You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. False and late repentance in verses 6-10. to 10. There's a reminder of what Saul did. Remember when Saul offers sacrifices to God against the word of the Lord... And he's confronted on that, and now the kingdom's going to be torn away from him. Saul manifests a false repentance. It's not a true humbling and a true humility. You can go back and read that in 1 Samuel 15, 24, and 25. But he's only looking at the immediate. 
As soon as there's an immediate temporal consequence for sin, i.e., my hand has been paralyzed, then he cries out to God in the wrong way. There's no repentance of idolatry. There's no turning back from the wickedness that he's done in his heart and led the country and the nation of Israel in. It's really only looking at the immediate things. And I want us to just pause for a second as we journey through this chapter and recognize that for all the calamity that can come upon us, for all the physical injury that we can suffer, some of those things are only temporary. This life is very short. Even if you're in this room and you're at the outer edge of that and the upper edge of that spectrum, if you will, and you might be in your sunset years, your eighth or ninth decade in life, praise God that He's given you a wonderful life, but in the span of eternity, it's short. It's a wisp. It's a vapor. It's here for a short time and vanishes. It's gone. It's like a blade of grass in the hot summer day. The sun comes out and it just withers away. So really, what is physical calamity in this earth? But what God's judgment is always pointing us to is trying to get us to repent, to acknowledge that God is sovereign, that His Word is true, that there are eternal consequences for sin, that we should turn from those things. And if all it takes in life to get you to see the Gospel and who God is, is a little bit of physical calamity in your life and a little bit of pain and suffering in the grand scheme of eternity, then praise be to God. But that, unfortunately, is not what Jeroboam has. It doesn't have that happen in his life. He's only looking at the immediate. His hand gets restored. What does he turn to? Bribery. Perfect. That sounds like a good recipe. As soon as God answers your temporary prayer, you don't confront your idolatry. See if you can bribe God. That, that always works out in Scripture. Uh, hint, it doesn't. So he says, come home, refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. And then the prophet declares to him again, now we're seeing the theme reinforced through the Scriptures and through this chapter. He declares to him again the importance of the Word of God. Even if you give me half your house, I can't do that. Because, here's the reason, it was commanded to me by the Word of the Lord. And so the man of God obeyed everything that the Lord had commanded him. So tucked in the way, away in the middle of this narrative, again, is the main point of the entire chapter, that this narrative rests upon and functions as the pivot point, that God's Word is central to everything that we say and do, that God's Word has authority in all areas of life, not just in the big things, but in the small things. You obey God's Word, and it's going to work out like God's Word says. You disobey God's Word, and it'll work out just like God says. So that brings us to a second consideration. We now look at the disobedience of the prophet. So then we move from this narrative in verses 11 to 32. We have the disobedience. This starts off first with deception. Verses 11 to 19. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him. He mounted it. He went after the man of God, found him sitting under the oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you. Or eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For so it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. Let's stop. 
We now come to another person in this narrative, and we find a very interesting thing. He, too, is unnamed. Just like the man of God at the beginning of the chapter, we now come in contact with a prophet, but he is unnamed and his sons are unnamed. He's called an old prophet. Now, the term prophet can be used to identify a true prophet of God and a false prophet. The word is the same, so we're not given any inclination. We don't really know his history. Was he a true prophet of God earlier in his life? We don't know. We don't speculate. We know by the end of this chapter he's going to become a true prophet of God, as we'll see in a little bit. I would speculate that he was no true prophet of God. It seems to be that he has compromised his morals and his integrity and what he knows to be about God, if he's willing to lie in the name of God to a true man of God, that's a problem. So he's just described this way, and that's all we know about him. He's an old prophet. Then we work down this list that you see here that I gave you in your outline. There's intrigue. He's very curious. Oh, I've been billing myself and selling myself all these years as a prophet. Here's a real one. I'm very interested. Tell me more about him. Where was he? What did he say? Intrigue is followed by interception then. Go and meet him. And then it's followed by interrogation. Exactly what did you say and what did God say? And then it's followed by invitation. Come back with me. Eat with me. And then the the man of God, the one we met first, invokes the word of the Lord. That's the invocation there. He says, no, I can't do that because this is what God said to me. What's the theme of the chapter? What God says I will do. God's word always comes true. I just told the king that he would have the kingdom ripped away from him and his household would not end, or his household would end. That comes in a later chapter as well. And that there would be a future king. (coughs) Excuse me. I just told the king that and that he could count on the word of God. And then God was very specific to me. And he said, you can't go by the way that you came. You've got to go a different way. You can't stop in anybody's house. You can't eat bread. You can't drink water. None of those things. So he invokes the word of God. And then that brings us to deception. Verse 18. And he said, this is the prophet, the old prophet. I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water, but he lied to him. So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and he drank water. So there's deception. By the way, a lesson for us to learn right here in the middle of this chapter again. Not the primary lesson, but a secondary application is you can't believe everybody who comes to you and just simply declares that they are coming on the authority of the Word of God. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord, we have a moral obligation to go to God's Word because He has now completed revelation. Has He not? We stand with the privilege this this morning and today of having God's complete and final revelation in our hands. Each one of you has it. So if somebody comes to you and says that they have a Word of the Lord, and the Word of the Lord contradicts what God's Word says in our Bible, we need to know that. You know what that also means? You need to be a student of God's Word. You need to be in it. Because how can you possibly know if somebody comes to you and says, thus and such says the Lord, and I have a word from the Lord, if you're not reading the Word of God. So you need to know the Word. 
And so then we find this, that we need to beware of false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. They look the part, they talk the part, but their words and deception are ultimately death. You say, how is it ultimately death? Well, we get a picture of that here by the literal death of God's servant, the man of God. So just because someone claims to have the word of the Lord doesn't make it so. If I just come to you with some bold declaration that I am speaking to you the words of God, be a Berean. Be like those Jews in Berea that were more noble than those in Thessalonica who when they received the word that Paul preached to them in the synagogues, rather than driving them out of the city or seeking to kill them, what did they do? They searched the Scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul said were so. So that's the deception, verses 11 to 19. Then it brings us to the first declaration, verse 20. Look at this. As they sat at the table, now the man of God really knows, or the prophet, excuse me, the old prophet, finally gets a taste of what it's like to really be used as a mouthpiece of God. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, this is like small, right? In our eyes, this is a small sin. I mean, the bigger thing, it seems like, would have been if he had changed the message to Jeroboam or ceased to give the message to Jeroboam. But with that message, God tells the prophet, you may not go back the way you came. You may not eat bread here. You can't even have a cup of water. You've got to get out of this land. And when he disobeys, now the word of God comes through the false prophet and he's used as a real mouthpiece of God and he declares to him, because you've done this, the penalty is death. So my question is, does God really mean what he says when he says something as serious as that? Well, let's keep reading. Verses 23-25. through 25. And after he had eaten bread, well, may as well finish my meal if it's going to be my last, right? And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it, and the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, the lion standing by the body, and they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. So there's the death. God's word played out exactly the way he said it was going to, which brings us then to a second declaration. Verses 26 to 32. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who, note this, disobeyed the word of the Lord. Oh, so now words mean something. Interesting. Therefore, the Lord has given to him, or given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. They saddled it, and he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey, brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, and he said, Alas, my brother. And God's word was fulfilled. You will not be buried with your fathers in your hometown. And he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he had called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses and the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall what? Surely come to pass. 
Oh, so now he's a believer. He says, I didn't believe it at first when I heard the news of the prophet who'd come and confronted the king, but now that I heard God talk to me and I saw his word play out in the really small things, I think it's time to take seriously the bigger message that he had. And I know for sure now that God means what he said, and so all of the big things are going to happen. And then lastly, we want to consider this morning the disobedience of the king, verses 33 and 34. So after all this takes place, what an odd chapter, right? After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, the disobedience of the king, but made priests for the high places. And we go into other places of Scripture and find out he's willing to go outside of the tribe of Levi to do this. Obviously, idolatry, great sin. And he does this. He makes priests from among the people. Anybody who wants to come be a priest. Any who would, he ordained to be the priest of the high places, and this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. God's word always comes true. So what's the lesson in all of this? I think it's this, that God is true no matter what he says, big or small. Everything that God says in his word, we can take to the bank. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm 119, verse 89. He said, what? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Something that we need to think about, that God who exists outside of time has made decrees, and these are decrees that we're supposed to pay attention to. These are decrees that we're supposed to follow in our life. These are things that we need to really take hold of and internalize. And God says, this is very important. There are big things. There are small things, and all of these things are things that you need to pay attention to. If I say it in my word, is it important? Yes. If it seems like a big thing to you, is that important? Yes. If it's a small thing and it doesn't seem important to you, is it also important? And the answer is yes, of course it is. Because every word of God proves true. I love that your scripture reading came from Psalm 18 this morning. You started in verse 31, but look at the verse before that. Psalm 18, verse 30, says that every word of God proves true. And what that means for us is very simple. It means that everything that God has said about the past is true. And if we don't understand it, we just need to seek to understand it. But everything that He says about the present is true. It means that everything He said about Jesus Christ is true. Everything he said about heaven and hell is true. Everything that he said about our nature, our sinfulness, and how we got to be in this way. Romans chapter 5. Wherefore is by one man sin entered the world, and death passed upon all men, for that what? All have sinned. All of that is true. Do you know what else it means? It means that everything that has not yet happened, does God speak about the future? Yes, he does. Let me ask you something. Do you think that what God has said in the Word of God about the future is also true? It is. And therein is the great truth of this passage. Because you're going to face, if you have not already, people who will come to you, wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets, false teachers, they're going to come to you and they're going to try and tear you away from the one true and living God. That is Satan's primary mission. And we already know that his primary mission 
uh, is that, and we know that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is a great deceiver and he wants to deceive and he wants it to sound good and sugar-coated. And so here's where my mind goes when I read 1 Kings 13. I go right to what Paul said when he opened his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, he says, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now it begins to make sense why he said that, doesn't it? Because if we deviate from the gospel and we're called to believe the gospel, if we deviate from that in the slightest way, and I change the message years down the road and you say, well, I know better now. We have a problem. And it's so big that he says, and as we have said before, I'll say it again, the very next verse, Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching a gospel that is contrary to the one that I have preached to you that you have received, let him be accursed. We can take everything that God has said in his word to the bank, as it were, because God's word is true. And I want you to see this morning from this passage and from all of Scripture, that God's Word is rich. The mining of His Word is just unfathomable. But the principles remain the same and they remain unchanged. That also means that when we say something and, we're, and it's a passage that's familiar to us, that we shouldn't be so light to pass it over. We've mentioned the Gospel. We've mentioned things of Christian obedience and all of those things, small and large. But it also means that when God says that He loves us, is that true? It is. So this morning, as we contemplate this and we close out the service, I want to leave you with what Paul said. He said this in Ephesians chapter 3. He prays for the church at Ephesus. He says, For this reason, in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, this is my prayer, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and here is the primary focus of His prayer, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that has surpassed knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God really means what he says in his word? He sure does. We're going to pray here in a moment, and then we're going to sing about that love as we sing about the deep, deep love of Jesus. And I hope that you will take that and meditate on it in a way that you maybe have never done before because you know that that can never be changed. It can never be broken. It can never be altered. To the glory of God, let us trust in his word today. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to look into the riches of your word, to find from an obscure chapter two men who remained unnamed. You know their names. You knew everything about them before their life and one day of their life came to pass. But you have given us an invaluable lesson that we need to anchor our life, every decision that we make, Every thought needs to be towards the future and towards pleasing you. And all the things that we do need to be anchored in the Word of God. And my prayer is that you would help each one of us go from this place more confident in your Word. 
what you have given to us, your eternal word. And we pray that you do this for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.